Good. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Perfectus podcast. Perfectus magazine is dedicated to kickstarting a conversation around the key drivers of human flourishing, progress, and the barriers that prevent individuals from reaching their full potential. I'm Ben Wilterdink, and today my co-editor Clay Rutledge and I are joined by Ian Rowe. Ian is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, the co-founder of Vertex Partnership Academies, a network of character-based high schools located in the Bronx, and the co-founder of the National Summer School Initiative. He is also the author of Agency, the four-point plan, F-R-E-E, for all children to overcome the victimhood narrative and discover their pathway to power. Ian, thank you for joining us today. Well, Ben and Clay, I have been looking forward to this conversation. Thank you very much for having me. Excellent. Uh, well, to get things kicked off, uh, for those who are still unfamiliar, which they shouldn't be, uh, your book, Agency, uh, let's go ahead and start off by asking you what the free F-R-E-E acronym stands for and, and why are those the four pillars that you decided to focus on? Well, thank you for uh, thank you for having me on, and thanks for the opportunity to speak about uh, agency. Yeah, it's a good place to start. And and uh, before I get to the acronym, I, I guess I should sort of uh, level set and yeah, what you know, why 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 this book at all? Uh, and uh, it's relevant to the fact that for the last uh, well, really twenty thirty years, I've been working with uh, kids of every background. Um, who have been in a range of situations, whether it's kids being raised um, in challenging uh, conditions, whether they face domestic violence or poverty, or even kids in wealthy uh, situations. And what I've really observed over the last few years is, and, and also running schools, I've, I've run schools in the heart of the South Bronx for the last decade, and I've just launched a new International Baccalaureate High School, um, and really what I've observed uh, over the last decade, and certainly accelerated since the death of George Floyd, have been these dominant narratives, which in my view are increasingly eroding the idea that young people can master their own destiny, that they can be architects of their own fate. You know, I run schools in the Bronx primarily because I want my students to know that they can do hard things, that there are pathways to their own power, to their, there are mechanisms, even if they're in the most challenging conditions, that there are mechanisms that many, many others have pursued, others who've been in similar conditions and have been successful. And yet the narratives I've really seen emerge over the last few years have really been much more about all the things that you can't do in our society. And as I've observed these sort of wrote these messages of sort of grievance and dependency and not messages of self-sufficiency, I felt compelled to write a book because, um, you know, it's not enough just to shout in the rain. What's the empowering alternative? Like, what is it? If the message is that young people are hearing everything that you can't do, then what am I saying is that I'm putting forth as what young people can say yes to, what can they embrace? So that, I, and I can go into more into detail into the, into the narratives that I'm fighting against, but that's really why I have put forth this energy to write agency, to create a framework that young people can embrace to understand how they can, can have much greater control of their own lives. Well, let's let's dig into that. What are the what are the narratives that you see you're pushing back against? Yeah. So you know, I I I, uh, I put I put it into two big categories that I call blame the system, and the other I call blame the victim. Uh, in the blame the system narrative. That's a view of America. You know, if you're if you're not successful in this country, if you're not achieving the American dream, it's because America itself is inherently flawed, right? That based on your race, your class, your gender, America is is in effect an oppressive nation. 
You know, if you're black, there's a white supremacist lurking on every corner. If you're, if you're an average worker, you know, capitalism itself is evil and destined for your destruction. I mean, the, the New York Times 1619 project, uh, which has really been discredited, but it's still out there, um, says that America's founding uh, ideals were false when they were written. You know, that the country has, you know, anti-black racism running in its very DNA. And so this narrative of blame the system is that these these systems are 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 so rigged against you, so discriminatory, so powerful that you as an individual are powerless to overcome them. And so that's a, obviously a very inherently debilitating message that because you know you've got to wait on some system itself to shift before you can be become successful. But the other narrative I also in addition to blame the system which is inherently debilitating there's also what I call blame the victim. In that narrative if you're not successful if you're not achieving the American dream it's not America that's the problem. You know America is the land of opportunity. America's great. I mean, the streets are paved with gold. In a blame the victim ideology, you're the problem. You as an individual, you failed to take advantage of all the opportunities that exist in our country. You haven't worked hard enough. You didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Like what's wrong with you? Now, of course, the problem with that narrative is, you know, I run schools in the Bronx where we just opened up our new high school. You know, in the year 2015, of all the students that started ninth grade in 2015, four years later, only 7% graduated from high school ready for college. Meaning they started ninth grade and either dropped out along the way, or they actually did earn their high school diploma, but still could not do math nor reading without remediation if they were to even attempt to go to college. And, you know, you kind of think, you know, what's worse that you you drop out or you do what you're supposed to do and you still can't um, compete on equal footing uh, if you were to, you know, to go out into the uh, college or in the workplace. And here's a situation in a district where right now, today in New York City, there's a legislative barrier. There's a cap on charter schools. So if someone wanted to launch a great school to help those other 93% of kids who aren't uh, able to compete on e equal footing, you couldn't do it, right? A 14-year-old can't solve that problem, right? So that's an example of a real barrier. So it's really hard to say to a kid, well, why didn't you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps when you can't even get access to the first rung, a good education of what it means likely to lead a life of flourishing. So we have to have grace and understand that when we do things like blame the victim, we're not taking into account the circumstances that many kids unfortunately find themselves in. And so that's the, that's the dynamic that I've observed is, is blame the system and blame the victim. You know, either you're too powerless or it's your fault. And that message is just very, very hard, in my view, for young people to really absorb and emerge with the idea that you could lead a life of agency. And so those are the narratives that I'm really trying to fight against. And as I said, it's not enough just to name those narratives that are inherently debilitating. What's the compelling alternative that can unleash young people's agency? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that stuff, Ian, because I think one of the things that I found, one of the many things I found really excellent in your book was that you delve into this tension between, I guess what you might call like a, a, like a, like a radical, like top down view versus the radical bottom up self-determined view, which is like, you can just do anything you want. Again, it's all on you. And I think you did a nice job of articulating that it's not either or, um, and then you get into, which is obviously like the point of free, you get into like building sort of the scaffolding of agency starting, you know, obviously emanating from the individual, but with the family and education and these other like societal structures. And could you, could you say a little bit 
more about that yeah. and also you know when, when talking about that like how you would convince or maybe how you would talk about those ideas to those two different extreme you know what in political yeah. terms like the extreme left which is everything is systemic everything's top down no one has any individual like autonomy over their existence to the extreme you know maybe libertarian right where anyone can just will themselves to whatever um <laughs> <laughs> like hook or by crook i'm gonna do this but... right um well yeah of course well let me first also say that uh, another piece of data that really struck me was research that I saw from the Archbridge Institute, where they had asked this question about, do I believe I have the capacity to lead a meaningful life? And I remember seeing, and you, 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 know, you may correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I remember seeing a huge gap between older Americans mm -hmm. right. who had a much greater sense that they could lead a meaningful life Versus younger Americans, 25 and under, who you would think, you know, are, are being raised at a time of incredible technological innovation. You think of our advances in healthcare, and and we're living at a time of, of enormous explosion and one level of opportunity. And yet in this study, more and more young people said that they did not uh, feel that they could lead a meaningful and independent life. So that that really that really struck me that a lot of the forces, whether it be these two narratives of blame the victim, blame the system narrative, maybe some of the 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 uh, the technology, the social media that exists, actually has the exact opposite effect on uh, human flourishing. So I just wanted to add, the, you know, Archbridge was really. Um, helpful in, in helping me to see that there's there's something going on here, particularly for this generation, for the rising generation. And I guess what I would say to those on the extreme left or on the extreme right who are sort of fixed in their corners is that my um, recommendation or my emerging framework for agency and how to lead a flourishing life really is, isn't coming from some ideological, uh, rigid position. It's coming from me over the last 20 to 30 years working with kids of almost every type. You know, I've worked with poor kids, rich kids, black kids, white kids, Hispanic kids, Asian kids, kids in homeless shelters, foster care, religious kids, non-religious kids. Um, and I've seen... I've doing, been doing this work long enough. I've, I've seen young people who, as they make their passageway into young adulthood, make decisions about their lives. And I, when I see kids who've been raised in some pretty tough conditions, as they you know, enter their you know, late teens or early 20s, unfortunately, they sometimes make decisions that recreate the same dysfunctions that they grew up in, you know, whether it be domestic violence or fragile families or single parenthood situations or uh, poverty. It's kind of this, this cycle of disadvantage was perpetuated. And yet I've seen other young people who are been growing up in the same exact conditions, and yet they made different sets of decisions. They made decisions that actually put them on a path to break that cycle of disadvantage. And the animating question in my life has been, what makes the difference? What, was, what were the set of interventions or pillars or institutions that those young people experienced that allowed them to be on a different path? And so that's where I really tried to step back and research and isolate. And frankly, the, one of the biggest differences I saw between those kids who recreated their disadvantage versus those that broke the cycle of disadvantage was that they had a sense of personal agency in their own lives, that they had a sense that they could lead a self-determined life. But the key is that it didn't come from nowhere, right? It didn't just happen. They weren't just blessed with it. And, I, and again, I'm happy to go into the framework where I think agency was cultivated but this is where it comes from, that um, we have to imbue within young people this idea that they are not just, as Martin Luther King said, just uh, um, 
flotsam and jotsam on the river of life, that they have capacity to be an agent of their own uplift. I think it would be helpful to go into the framework a little bit because I do, I am very interested in that generational gap. And, and as I think about some of those pillars in the framework, I think in embedded in that, those are some of the changes that we've seen. Um, uh, so what, can you talk a little bit about that framework and then maybe yeah. we can touch on how that's changed uh, over, over the past few decades? Yeah. So just to continue on this idea of what what's the difference between those kids who are able to um, break the cycle of disadvantage versus those who succumbed. Again, the, the central difference is that this idea of personal agency, that there was a belief that those that were able to break the cycle of disadvantage started with this idea that they had the capacity to shape their own destiny. And what I observed over those young people was that they embraced four pillars. And the first was family. And what was interesting is that even kids who came from families that had been marked by despair, dysfunction, drugs, um, again, domestic violence, poverty, it wasn't about the family that they were from. It was about the family that they were on their pathway to form. So there's some data around uh, this idea called the success sequence, where if a young person finishes just their high school degree, then they get a full-time job of any kind, just so they learn the dignity and discipline of work. And then if they have children, marriage first, 97% of millennials who pursue that series of decisions avoid poverty. It's not a guarantee, um, you know, because nothing in life is guaranteed, but it's an amazing piece of information that I believe more and more young people need to know and learn in school and through other institutions that this is your first big set of decisions. And, and my observation has been that the young people that were able to break the cycle of disadvantaged, they recognized that the most consequential decision that they, um, um, the, the most consequential decision that a human being can make, the first decision is to whether or not to bring another human being into the world, and that there are better processes to do that, both for you as well as your offspring. Sorry, I was having some battery issues, now I'm back. <laughs> um, so that was my first observation, that young people were able to break the cycle of disadvantage, regardless of the family that they were from. The pathway for the family they were going to form were much more in line with the creation of children and spouses who were going, going to be in a married uh, two-parent household. So that, so that was the first big observation, which is why F in free is the first anchor. The second observation I've made of those young people who are able to break the cycle of disadvantage was that these young people typically had some kind of moral framework for decision making. That there was, there was a, a sense of what was right and what was wrong. And typically that moral framework was grounded in some religious institution whether it was Christianity, Buddhism, um, Judaism, it almost didn't matter, but that there were a core set of tenets that these young people lived by. So it gave them a moral code. It gave them a framework for, yeah, making decisions to discern, is this right for me? Is it right for my community? And that was extremely powerful. And on top of just the moral code itself, these young people who were able to break the cycle of disadvantage were also part of a community of people who lived by that same moral code, right? So, and there were these regular rituals, whether it was going to church um, every Sunday or um, you, you were part of a community of people that there was almost an expectation that you lived up to 
this code and being part of a community because that's something that you valued. So that's my second big observation that the role of having a personal faith commitment, typically in some kind of religion, was something else that marked, that was a, something in common with young people who were able to break that cycle as they entered young adulthood. The third, and so, and that's why religion is the second part of my free framework. The third observation I've made for those young people able to break the cycle of disadvantage is that they typically had benefited from some kind of educational freedom or school choice that their parent or themselves had been able to find the school that was really uh, much better designed for them. You know, as I mentioned earlier, we just launched an international baccalaureate high school in the Bronx in a place where only 7% of kids graduate from high school ready for college. Well, if those are your only options, it's really hard to build the kind of educational background that's really going to allow you to propel forward. So that's my third observation, that educational choice, the ability to find a school that was really well designed for you, that's another element that I found in young people who are able to break, <clears throat> to break the cycle of disadvantage. And so the fourth element, entrepreneurship, actually is almost a byproduct of the first three in that when you had a young person who was on a pathway to form a strong family, they had a personal faith commitment, they benefited from some kind of education or school choice, that usually led someone to develop what I call an entrepreneurial mindset, which really in some ways is, is someone who's resilient, who's a problem solver in their own life, who has an overcomer's attitude, right? Entrepreneurship is typically associated with someone who launches a business, and my definition includes that, but it's a bit more expansive in that it's someone who is able to handle challenges when they come because you know you can fall back on the education you received or the community of faith that you're part of or the family that you're now forming, that like, there's a community that has your back. Right, that you you have more of a you you can become more of an informed risk taker. You can take on challenges, and so the last E in my free framework is entrepreneurship. Again, it it all it functions primarily because the you, of the benefits that emerged in helping embrace the pillars of family, religion, and education as the first three pillars. So that's where my free framework really comes from. It's, a, it's 20 to 30 years of observing young people who, as they were uh, encountering the challenges of relationships, work, timing of family formation, these pillars help them move in a different direction. And ultimately, lead the kind of life, the life of choosing that they've wanted. Ben's heard me go on about this <laughs> in many instances, but I have to pick your brain about it. I, you know, one of the things that has surprised me about all these variables that you've mentioned is, and, and I'm saying this, you know, in the context of having spent nearly two de decades in academia as a professor is how little they are taught in universities. And I don't even mean from like a, a promotional point of view. I mean, just from a, a value neutral point, scientific point of view, you would think there would be more emphasis in the social and behavioral sciences on saying, here's what we know works. Just focusing on the religion example, for instance. The amount of research within the psychology, sociology, and, you know, kind of medical approach to religion of all the ways that religion helps people cultivate self-regulatory resources, respond positively to negative life events, traumas, find social connections, inspire, you know, entrepreneurial yep. positive activities. I mean, the research is honestly so overwhelming that it's. It's it's very, very odd that it's, from my experience, outside of like a small community of people who do that research, 
is largely neglected in the classrooms and in the broader like intellectual sphere. So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on why things that are, these aren't like, this is, there's a, a big body of evidence and you don't hear a lot yeah. about it. I, you know, I, <laughs> Clay, I share your, your incredulity <laughs> as to why this is, you know, I, I, when I wrote this book and agency and really this whole idea of the free framework, to me, it's actually just common sense. I mean, you're, you're talking about all the social science and evidence that's out there. It also just kind of makes sense, right? That if you form a strong family, if you're part of a faith community, if you get a good education, doesn't it seem like it's a logical extension that that would then lead you to be more entrepreneurial and, 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 and to be someone who is optimistic about the future? You know, all these things seem to come together. And yet, and this is where the, the narratives come back into play, because, for example, people who are really immersed in the blame the system ideology, where their whole thing is, no, 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 this is an oppressive country, and, and if you're of a certain race, a certain class, a certain gender, and you want to keep pushing the narrative that those forces are more powerful, then guess what? You actually have a perverse disincentive to not tell the the <clears throat> rising generation about what a personal faith commitment could mean in your own life or what it means to be on the pathway to form a married two-parent household. I mean, you just cited you know, how overwhelming the data is on religion and how having a personal faith commitment, what it means. Talk about the data as it relates to children being raised in a married two-parent household. I mean, it's it's stunning. And so, but we're in a time where it takes great courage to say obvious things. I often say this when I'm writing about my book. I know my book, the, the title of it is agency, but in some ways the most important word today is courage hmm. because you have to be brave to go out and stand and say, wait a minute. Sure, there might be controversies as it relates to religious institutions, but it is irrefutable when you look at the data of the likelihood of forming strong marriages, the likelihood of being more civically engaged, the likelihood of being a better citizen overall, the, the lower levels of um, loneliness and depression and isolation. It's overwhelming. And yet there are folks who are really doing everything in their power to suppress that kind of information. And so uh, where does that, where does it come from? You know, uh, uh, I, I, I think these narratives have become so powerful in that there's power in victimhood. Hmm. You know, there's power in perpetuating narratives where you can say it's the system that's determinative, not your own ability to embrace these four pillars individually. And that's what we have to fight against. That we, that's what we have to let young people know, that you do have power. It's not that there aren't, you know, quote unquote, systemic issues. And again, I'll, I'll cite the district where, where I'm just opened up a school. There are elected officials who perpetuate a system where you have no choice to go to a school other than the school that's been failing for generations. That's a real barrier. But we can never get to the point where we send messages to young people that are so nihilistic, that are so focused on all the things that you cannot do and that you have to wait and not turn them on to all the research and common sense that things like family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship can make a huge difference in your own life. Yeah, that, I mean, that message that no matter what you do, you won't be able to succeed. There's no way to, to move forward. It just seems like poison to, to a younger person or to anybody really. It's, it's, but... to, right, to any, I mean, it's poison, but it's happening. I mean, I often use this example, Nicole Hannah Jones, who's the lead author of the New York Times 1619 project. This has to do with race, but I think it's emblematic of the, the issue that we're talking about. You know, she wrote an 8,000 word essay 
called What is Owed? And basically, uh, it's a treatise uh, essentially saying that black people, there's nothing that black people can do to close the racial wealth gap, that um, uh, that there's no other answer other than a $14 trillion reparations program where the government just kind of showers black people with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And in this piece, she literally says, it doesn't matter what a black person does. Doesn't matter if they get married. Doesn't matter if they get college educated. Doesn't matter if they buy a home. Doesn't matter if they save. And she says, none of those things can overcome, quote, 400 years of racialized plundering, end quote. And, you know, the thing is, and of course, the irony, of course, is that she, Nicole Hannah-Jones, has done all four of those things in her own life, <laughs> right, to lead a quite prosperous existence. And, and the, other, the other reality is the thing that she's talking about is the fact that there is a racial wealth gap. If, if, you, if you look at the 2019 survey of consumer finances, the, the wealth of the average white American family is about $160,000 more than the wealth of the average black American family. So that's true. There is a racial wealth gap if you look at nothing but race. But if you take into account just two other factors, family structure and education, you get a very different result. The wealth of the average black married college-educated family is about $160,000 more than the wealth of the average white single parent family, right? So it's completely reversed. But the obvious message is maybe there are factors beyond just race that can make a huge difference in the life of a young person. But if the way in which you obtain and maintain power is to continue to push these narratives of hopelessness, there's nothing you can do, then any idea of something called agency is a threat to your, ide to your ideology. And this is why I say I think we just need courage to go out there and tell young people that there is a different way of thinking about your life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we talked a little bit about all of the evidence uh, that shows the importance of these these pillars that you're talking about. And, you know, I often tell people, you know, we work in this think tank kind of world and we do public policy and academic research. And most of the time, the role of a think tank especially is to take these complex ideas and translate them in a way that makes it more digestible for people to understand and in this particular area, we're doing the exact opposite. You know, we're taking these ideas that are, like you said, are, are rather intuitive, you know, to some extent, or at least among a certain group of people, it would be pretty intuitive to think, yeah, you know, if yep. you have these institutions and you come from a, a, an intact family, you're probably, you know, more likely to, to be uh, more resilient and succeed. And we're piling on academic research and polls and studies, just trying to move this ball forward and make this case. Um, and, and I think your book really is helpful in that it, it brings together a lot of these threads and it, and it also introduces your personal experience working you know, for almost, like you said, 30 years with these different kids. So I really want to ask you how... How has it been received? Do you do you think that have you received a lot of pushback? Have you um, seen a lot of people say, you know, I I never really thought about it this way? How how has that been uh, since since you've yeah. really released the book and started making these arguments? Yeah, it's it, it's uh, it's a fair question, and you know, so far I'm pleased. Uh, um, uh, certainly, the the this this idea of a third way, I think people are yearning for. It's like you know, bringing water into the desert <laughs> that, you know, give me something that young people can say yes to and, and people that work with young people. So that's actually been very refreshing. Um, on, you know, on the flip side, 
for those people who are in, for example, the blame the system camp, it doesn't matter how nuanced um, my arguments are unless you're fully in the camp where you're just saying systemic racism or systemic this or systemic that. If you're not uh, just continuing to parrot uh, that ideology, then you're, um, you're persona non grata. You know, there are people such as Ibram Kendi who wrote the book um, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He says, if there's a racial disparity, then there must be racial discrimination, period. There is no other answer. And so, you know, where I might say, for example, in the example in that racial wealth gap, well, there might be a gap, but the, the, the reasons that it exists go well beyond race. And typically, if you embrace the four pillars, almost every issue related just to race really significantly diminishes because you realize there's much more power for an individual by embracing this idea of family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. So I'm, you know, so I'm, I realize you can't reach everyone. Um, but my hope is that by including these two narratives, the blame the system and the blame the victim and narrative, at least those people who, even if they ultimately don't agree with my conclusions of this new framework of free, at least they're hearing that their arguments are being acknowledged. I mean, there are several people, even when I was writing the book, their whole thing is, wait a minute, are you blaming you know, poor people for the situation that they're in. And I really started to take that attitude in mind that I wanted to name that. I wanted to, to say that a blame the victim ideology is harmful as well. Like we shouldn't make it so that, you know, as you were saying, Clay, earlier, that, you know, an individual is just superhuman and it doesn't matter what their conditions are. That's unfair. And so my hope was that by including these two meta-narratives, I could at least signal to people that I think I have a good understanding of the problem, even if you may not agree with my prescription, you know? Um, so, uh, but, you know, so far so good. I, you know, we're on a, I forget, we're like on a fourth or fifth printing of the book, which is amazing. I just yesterday mm -hmm. finished taping the audio book, um, It'll, you know, come out in paperback uh, probably later this year or, or next year. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it is interesting. I think this book has legs in the, in the sense of the, the, the ideas that I'm putting forth are timeless. You know, I, I wrote this book during 2020 and 2021 during the era of COVID, but there's almost no mention of COVID in the book. Because the, the ideas are timeless. They're about human flourishing. So my hope is that it has a very uh, long shelf life as well. Well, yeah, I think people should be reading the book. And I think it should be assigned in these college classes that I've been complaining about. It's like as a, as a very accessible, as a very accessible um, overview of these different you know, of these different structures. In fact, one I wanted to ask you about because it's an area of interest at the Archbridge Institute. As you know, we, you know, we do a lot of work on the American dream, but even within that, you know, we're interested in the importance of a positive national identity or patriotic like attitude. And we found from our own studies that the good news being that um, the majority of Americans are proud to be American. And, and that's generally the case across across different groups with, you know, some variation. Um, but in addition to that, that's, you know, highly correlated with um, positive characteristics that lead to more flourishing, like optimism about the future, social trust. And yet at the same time, um, my sense of just following different public intellectuals and social commentators is that there's a growing skepticism about, you know, about the American dream and, you know, and about national pride in general. And it's not just coming from, I mean, the obvious um, side is a sort of anti-American kind of like far left, far left view. But even on the populist right, I think you see this sort of 
America's in decline. Um, you know, we're, you know, we're, it's sort of a pessimism about the future. Um, and also kind of a victimhood mindset, I think, of like there's, you know, we're all being, we're being controlled by corporate media or, yep. and so I'm just kind of curious as to your, your thoughts about, you have a chapter in there that I think it might even be called something like, it's um, something about believing in a good, it's important to believe. A good, it's not great good, country. Not great country for agency. And I was curious if you could just talk a little about what you think about the, especially as someone you also do it. You also nicely talk about your own like family's immigrant history and, you know, coming to America. So I was just curious if you could offer any insight about what you think the importance is of having a, a positive national yeah. identity. Yeah. And, and again, we're at a time where there's almost a division between people who are supportive of America or even the word Patriot has become politicized mm -hmm. where you're, you're some super fanatic military and, you know, um, the thing about America is that for all of its faults, it's a, it's a nation always striving towards this idea of a more perfect union. And you're right, I do dedicate a whole chapter in the book. I use the play Hamilton as a as a sort of a, a model. You know, I'm, I'm just like my country. I'm young, uh, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not going to throw away my shot, you know? And there's some power in those words. You know, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. I use those lyrics in the book because I, I do think it's kind of that's what the American spirit is all about. And some say, oh, no, that's the renegade, uh, you know, individual, rugged individualism. That's part of it. But America was born on this idea of, yes, individualism, but individualism in the context of institutions that can provide support, like the institutions of strong families, faith, education, and entrepreneurship. So I wrote this idea that we must believe that you you live in a good, if not great country, one that is not hostile to your dreams. Because if you believe the, the blame the system narrators, then you believe the country's hostile, right? You, you lose this sense of we're pulling together as a nation. And I think that's just very harmful. De Tocqueville said, um, what makes America, you know, the most uh, enlightened nation is the ability to repair her faults, hmm. which I've often, I've always found that to be a beautiful quote. And that was his observation when he was touring the country back in the 1800s. Because what it suggested is that you as an individual, like I'm just like my country, I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, that the country has the tools of self-betterment and self-renewal, and those are documents like the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Amendments, all of those are tools that have allowed us to become better and stronger and to make progress. And in a sense, what I'm trying to do is for every young person to say that you have the same tools of self-betterment and self-renewal within you. You're I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. And that's what I want to do for agency, to help every young person know that they live in a country that would allow them to have that shot and that they don't have to do it alone. Agency is individually practiced, but socially empowered. Right. So these institutions are are what make this country great. And in fact, it's what the country actually depends upon. Right. A, a society that is a self-sufficient society or self-governing society depends upon self-governing individuals. Self-governing individuals don't become self-governing just all by themselves. That is shaped, and I've put forth free as my framework for how to create a new age of agency, a new age of human flourishing for young people. 
And, um, oh, God. <laughs> right. Oh, no, it's, you know, you were, you reminded me of, of something that, uh, you know, I read many years ago in, in, in graduate school, you know, there's a theory in psychology called self-determination theory. It's a very powerful theoretical framework with, you know, quite a bit of evidence in support of it, which makes the argument that humans by nature have a fundamental need for autonomy that it's, you know, that we, um, we want to see our actions as determined from within us, right? To a uh, uh, self-determined and to the, the more we do, like the more we do things because we want to do them, the more likely we are to persist in doing them. Silly <laughs> examples being like recycling, like you can get, you know, you can get a government to force people to recycle. Um, but it, you know, people don't like that. And then they look for ways around it. And then as soon as it's not required anymore or not penalized anymore, people stop doing it. But if you can convince people like that, they, if you can persuade people to use their own reasoning and to feel internally motivated to recycle, they'll, 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 they'll keep doing it. Right. So it's much better to do the hard work of persuading people to do things for self-determined reason. And, and, and one of the things I thought was really cool about that, that work was, you know, People initially, I think, thought that that was a very Western or even American biased idea that people in different cultures wouldn't feel that way. People in more collectivist cultures, for instance, in like South Asian mm -hmm. countries. Yeah. But what these researchers discovered is, no, cultures differ, of course, and they differ along the continuum of individualism and collectivism. But even in highly collectivist cultures, individuals have a need for self-determination. They want to feel like they are choosing to be part of the collective, right? They want, even if they highly value, like in Japanese culture, even if they highly value the hierarchical structure of family and respecting your elder, your elders and things like that, they don't want to be coerced into valuing that. They want to be enculturated in a way that allows them to be autonomous. So I just think that that's something that is worth emphasizing, you know, perhaps that we're talking about this in the context of America, of course. Um, but this is something that seems to be, as far as I can tell, innate to the human human spirit. This, yeah. this the power of agency and the desire for self-determination. Yeah, and I think it even maps to this whole issue of equity versus equality, you know, equality of opportunity versus equity of outcome. Because what you're talking about is that every human being wants the opportunity to fulfill their potential, their their individual potential, whatever that might be. But there's some folks who are so obsessed with this idea of a top-down ideology of equity, where no, 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 we need everyone to be the same. We need everyone to be equal outcomes. I mean, the end of my book, I use the short story of Harrison Bergeron which some, you know, some of you might know, you know, Vonnegut's incredible short story where after amendment, after amendment, after amendment, it's finally been achieved, a, uh, an America where everyone is equal, hmm. but to the point where you've had to be handicapped. So if you're tall, you have to, you know, or, or strong, you have to carry around all of these weights so that your natural born strength is now sort of nullified. And it's like you've created this level playing field, but it's not level at all. There's unhappiness because people haven't been able to exercise their autonomy to identify whatever their God-given potential is. And at the end of Harrison Bergeron, at the end of the short story, this, this character breaks out of the shackles that government has imposed on them so that they're all equal and there's this moment when you realize that's what agency is all about. There's no guarantee in life. There's no guarantee. And you actually accept in an age of agency that you're going to have unequal outcomes because people value different things. There's some people that want to be captains of industry. There's some people that want to ski, you know, <laughs> ski for a living and, and, and do that. But that's the essence of humanity. But we just have to make sure that people, young people in particular, are exposed to the kinds of institutions like the pathway to forming a strong family, 
strong faith communities, strong educational opportunities, entrepreneurship that allow them to make the right decisions for them. That the only, the only limitation is their own imagination. And that's why I've written agency. And, and that's why I think it's more in line with what you're talking about. We want to be autonomous individuals, although we're also social creatures simultaneously, right? Yeah. Agency is individually practiced, but socially empowered. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a good point, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about like what self-determination or autonomy means. And I think a good way to say it is it's it means not being controlled. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't mean being individuated from everyone. It doesn't mean being alone. It means right. not being coerced, right? It means having the ability to choose your path. and Right. Um, and, and it doesn't mean you have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Right. Like you've got to be this, this, you know, again, it's not to say that there isn't room for individual agency and responsibility, of course. Right. But if anyone's selling that message, they're not selling the idea of agency. They're, 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 um, they're pushing something which is, it almost places too much of a burden on a young person to think, oh my gosh, I've got to overcome all this by myself. And that's, that's inherently debilitating too. Right. And deep down, I think, you know, people, if you have them interrogate their own success in life, they know, they'll say, oh, I wouldn't have been able to have done this without the support of my, my wife, or I wouldn't have been able to have done this without this great mentor I had, or, you know. Yep. Everyone knows at some level that there's, or my time in the military or my time in this, you know, everyone knows that there are structures, I think. Yep. Um, if they're being honest. If they're being honest. Right. <laughs> well, that, well, that's why, you know, when I gave the example of Nicole Hannah-Jones earlier, and she's not the only one, but this fact that she's saying it's impossible for a black person to do this and, and the, not even if they do these steps and then she does those steps <laughs> And, and, you know, and that's a big reason for her success. We have to call out the hypocrisy yeah. when there are folks who do not um, preach what they are practicing in their own lives. All right. Well, I think that's a really great place to end it. Uh, Ian, thank you so much for uh, being willing to talk with us today. Really appreciate it. No, this was a great conversation, guys. I look forward to more work in the future and hoping to compel more young people to understand the mechanisms by which they can exercise agency within their own lives. Thank you so much, Ian.